I want to pick up on something that we explored in the talkie bit last week, and I'm going to try to do that in a way that means all of this makes sense, even if you weren't able to join us last week or you know, catch the live stream of the podcast during the week. So in the interest of that, just a short recap of a particular part of, of that. Part of what we explored last week was the work of the psychologist and neuroscientist Gregory Burns, and particularly his thoughts about why we as humans are uncertainty-averse. <laughs> we do not like uncertainty. And Burns contends that because most of the time life doesn't change that much. I mean, can you think of the last time somebody you were in contact with, somebody you're not in contact with all the time, and they're like, hey, what's new? And you're like, yeah, nothing new to report. <laughs> you know, whatever. It's a business as usual here. Uh, even if business as usual is business as unusual, you know, like we can get used to that too. We, we kind of have done, I suppose, in certain ways, right? But lots of life kind of has that sense to it, that, that not much is changing in grand uh, de- destabilizing ways, and so our brains over time have evolved to emphasize that perspective. That's one of the things that Burns contends. And the other reason he would say that we shy away from uncertainty is because it reminds us of our mortality, and that terrifies us as a species. And in response, one of the things we often do is tell ourselves stories that, as Burns puts it, function as, quote, the glue that links together what would otherwise be a frighteningly random world. That's a pretty good short description of the way stories function for us. The way, um, the way mythologies, guiding stories, function for us. From my perspective, at least, that makes a lot of sense. And it resonates deeply with my own lived experience, both inside and outside of religion, which is where I was most consistently exposed to stories that were intended to directly address that terror of mortality. These days, I often seem to find myself in conversations with people that are actively reconsidering some of the stories they were told about not needing to fear their own mortality. I had one of those conversations at a concert we were at last night. I was sitting there. We were arriving separately as family members from different things, and I was sitting there by myself, and this person that I do not know at all just walked over and sat down beside me and said, Hi, Tim. (laughs) And we started to talk. Um, and, and just just another person in the world kind of going, man, I can't believe what I used to believe. Um, but there are still things I do believe. And what, what's it look like to explore some of those kind of things in a community? You know, so we, we were having that conversation uh, out of the blue. <laughs> so I feel like I, I, this just happens. Um, I get to have these conversations. And because of the tradition that I grew up in, most of those stories are some version of like the stories we were told that were meant to address this fear, are some version of, don't be afraid because one way or another, God is going to fix everything in the end. Lots of variations on that theme, of course, including how much suffering happens beforehand, why that suffering happens, where that suffering takes place, what the resolution of the suffering looks like, what shape the reward for enduring the suffering has. There's lots of variation around those kind of things. But the big theme in the story is fixed in the end. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them emphasize some other time and some other place as the time frame and location for all being well, which, if you think about it from the how did the story get here sense, that makes, that makes a lot of sense because anyone can tell that our present-day lived experience leaves some things to be desired. And we know by lived experience as well, no matter how hard we crank on the levers we have accessible to us, we can't make everything right. And so if we have a story that says someday everything will be right, it makes sense that the story would have a shape that says some other place and some other time, right? In terms of our human experience, of our limitations. 
One of the ways that those kind of stories link together the events in our lives that are not orderly is by suggesting that we can kind of we can kind of kick the can of understanding or accepting or even feeling the impact of those events down the road somewhere into the future. We can we can displace those things. And I can appreciate the functional benefits of that because among other things that's the kind of an idea that kind of keeps the deck clear for living a higher functioning, more productive uh, in the capitalist industrial sense of productive anyway, life, right? It kind of pushes some of those things out to the margins and makes more functional room. It makes theologies and belief systems that are kind of of the name it and claim it nature more plausible and more likely to generate good feeling experiences. I can, at a distance at least, I can sort of appreciate those things. What I find it much harder to appreciate or affirm is the way that those same stories can end up being a framework for denial of the emotional realities of our life experiences. The ways that they can be so one-sided and insistent that we end up believing that we need to suppress or even repress our emotions in the name of right belief. We need to not feel certain things. There is a growing chorus of voices in, among other places, the medical community pointing to studies about the relationship between what we might categorically call niceness and various pathologies, most notably cancers. We could describe emotions as things that start in the body. They call for a response from the brain, and they are managed by a combination of brain and mind. In other words, emotions are whole person experiences, and they are powerful ones that impact us on every level. And the more that I learn about this realm, and to be clear, I'm, I'm not reflecting on this as some sort of an expert, but as a passionate and intrigued amateur with you know, access to more experts than I have time to absorb... But the more time I spend reading, thinking, considering this, the more I think that, that I and perhaps many others who grew up in story environments similar to mine could probably benefit by giving our stories and their possible outcomes another look. One of the personal reasons I feel that way is because lately I seem to have the privilege of being invited into conversation with several people about how the stories they were taught about how to approach mortality are just plain not working very well. If that's not the case for you, it's still pretty nice outside. Like you might just really want to skip this bit. I <laughs> feel free. Um, it's it's lovely out, and and honestly, I'm not being sort of facetious. Like perhaps being surrounded by the reality of the wider living world is going to bring you more perspective and more joy than anything I'm about to consider. But if you do stick around, do it with if you if you're able with the mindset that not all of this is for everybody. Like pick up what's for you. You know, like I mean, always, but also in this. The simplest way that I know how to describe how those stories aren't working for some people is to observe that staying true to those stories seems to require the denial of the full range of human emotions. And the dysfunction of those stories sometimes shows up when people express things like how being sad feels like it's the equivalent of being unfaithful or denying some particular belief about the faithfulness of God. They might express the need to not cry, in quotes, because they also, in quotes, know that God is going to make whatever is wrong right, and being sad or expressing the so-called negative emotions is somehow in contravention with that belief, or expressing some sort of reservations about the merit of feeling that feeling. And when I explore that further, 
in conversation, it's not unusual to bump into the fear that if they start down that path of feeling those more complex emotions, the feelings will somehow storm the gates of their sanity and take over the whole place. And that's not a metaphor I use lightly. These fears are real, they are substantial, and they, they are sometimes debilitating. Now, I do know that often trauma is in this mix as well. It's not the lens we're looking through at the moment, but I believe we could do that with real benefit. So that's all I'll sort of say about that in this context. Perhaps, perhaps we could say that inside a story frame like that, emotions like sadness, and remember what we're talking about here is happiness, <laughs> emotions like sadness inside a story frame like that are the enemy. That's, that's a space that they occupy. And, and as a result, we need to fight them off. We need to return to something perhaps called the joy of the Lord, in which we find the strength to continue to fight off those emotions that might bring with them things like questions or doubt. If one was inclined to cynicism, you could look at those sorts of beliefs and behaviors and suspect that they were deliberately constructed to keep people from coming up with the kinds of distressing questions or concerns that would lead them away from religious institutions. But even without that kind of a perspective, I think it's easy enough to find stories of folks whose denial of the full range of human emotions in the name of faith has backfired pretty spectacularly, not least of all in the form of health concerns, including mental health concerns. When our body tells our brain to feel something and our mind denies the request, our whole person pays the price. And again, in the interest of clarity, when I say whole person, I'm including spirit. Now, the reason I suggested you might prefer a walk outside is like, that, that just doesn't land for everybody. I get that. And that's, I'm fine with that. I, I hope we can be together. But if we can take some of those things as possible givens, as at least experiences that somebody we know might be having, whether we are having it or not, then it might be interesting to reframe that story that I just described a little bit. So let's, let's just see how it goes. You could, you could consider this a thought experiment, if that helps. Make it, a, make it an it, you know, out there, instead of in here. But let's just try this. Instead of thinking about our emotions, perhaps especially those emotions we find more distressing as the enemy, let's consider thinking of them like the weather. So imagine for a moment, and if you're not a, win- if you're not a winter person, I'm, like, I'm not trying to be cruel here, but imagine for a moment your perfect summer day. Okay? So for me, that's, let's say that's sunny, uh, maybe mid to high 20s, light breeze to keep, the, I was going to say to keep the bugs off, but this is your perfect summer day, so there's no bugs. It's perfect, right? Now, so we're imagining this day. Now, Imagine being told that it's your responsibility to make that weather happen every day. And then add to that the weight of having been told that if you can't make that weather happen every day, you might be putting the future of your soul in jeopardy or at least downgrading your eternal reward package somehow. Or if that's too extreme, if that's too heavy on the hyperbole, you are for sure disappointing your sky dad who is perfectly loving, which means this is all on you. Keep the weather sunny, people. How might one feel about that perfect weather by this point? (laughs) For my part, I would say at least a bit conflicted. Um, 
and, and maybe at the very least somewhat stressed because unless you know something that I don't know, none of us has control of the weather. Our emotions are a lot like the weather. We have about as much control over them as we do over the weather. We can kind of predict the weather sometimes. Some of that's environmental or it's circumstantial. If we think of that in terms of emotions, for example, if we have a big work deadline or we've got a test coming up or you know, inflation happened, uh, we might be feeling a bit stressed or grumpy. Right? So we can kind of look at our circumstances and go, yeah, okay, that, I can appreciate how the weather might feel like this, given the givens. But also, sometimes it just rains for no apparent reason. <laughs> and my mom used to call those sun showers, right? The sky looks blue overhead, but all of a sudden the raindrops show up anyway. And because our emotions come from a kind of complex interplay between our bodies, nervous systems, and our brains, that stuff happens. And in particular... As far as the brain part goes, they come from a part of the brain that we sometimes call our lizard brain, our, our primal brain, the oldest part of our brain, evolutionary speaking, and the part that is key to survival. Our emotions come from the part of our brain that is also the home of our fight, flight, and freeze responses. It's a part of the brain that we don't have conscious control over. In other words... We don't have direct control over our emotions in the sense that we can't will ourselves to be happy or make ourselves not be worried in terms of the emotional experience of those things. And believing harder doesn't actually change that. Now, <laughs> before we burst into you know, an uncontrolled, emotionally fraught tirade about how that's not true, about how we do have self-control and so on, there's a little bit of a modifier we should take into account. When our emotions come, unbidden as they may be, we can choose what we do with them. We can't choose them, but we can manage them. It's sort of like deciding if a rainy day means that we're stuck at home or if we need to just put on a jacket before we go out in the rain. We seem to generally have considerable agency in this whole story, but it's important to not conflate the existence or the reality of emotions with the part our conscious self plays in managing them, to not fold those two things together as though they were the same. In other words, we could say that it's about learning how to feel emotions but not have them take over our day or make our decisions for us. And, of course, history, trauma, mental health, our surrounding environment, there's other factors that are in the mix here as well. So I grew up in, you know, the prairies of central Canada. Uh, and I did grow up with this saying, if you don't like the weather, just wait a minute. You know, like, it'll change. And in this case, it applies. Like the weather, our emotions, our moods are always changing. Our emotions come and go, which brings us to another important modifier of this metaphor. If we think about our emotions as being like the weather... It's not that hard to imagine why we might be afraid of, you know, the big feels, right, of the stormy emotions. We live in an age where we can see the impact of extreme weather in the news all the time. Stormy weather can be scary weather. And so can stormy or strong emotions. So it's important to understand that we have emotions, but we are not comprised entirely of our emotions, even the strongest ones. We could think of ourselves as being like that blue sky that we talked about. Our emotions are the weather, 
But the blue sky of the self is where they happen. That's where the weather happens. So no matter how stormy, the weather can come and go, and the blue sky is still there. Now, it is no fun to live through a big storm. It is easier to live our life and love it, to feel happy when it's all blue skies and sunshine, when the weather matches the sky, (laughs) if you will. But if we let the weather determine what we'll do or not do, we're forever at the mercy of something over which we do not have conscious control. And that choice... What we do at that intersection is, generally speaking, something over which we do have some control. So, because we exist as a community to explore what we believe, and that could feel like a psychologist's sidebar, it's connected dots. So what happens when we learn something like this, and it seems plausible to us on some level or other, but we grew up being told something very different in the name of religion or right belief? What happens when we come to an intersection like that? Well, (laughs) we might have some feelings about that. (laughs) And they might be pretty powerful ones. Not least of all because if the story that glues our worldview together comes under reconsideration, we might feel threatened or afraid. We might feel like the ground that we were counting on to be solid under our feet as we faced a world that would otherwise be experienced as terrifying and random started to move, started to be shaky. And those emotions, things like feeling threatened or afraid, those can be rather powerful emotions, feeling combative, like we need to push that new idea away because it threatens us. Those can be big, stormy emotions that we would rather deny than face and handle, let alone move through so that the next emotion, let's even suggest perhaps a lovely one like happiness, has somewhere to be. Now, we're not going to explore this today, but... Despite the fact that we're not going to explore it in any depth, I wanted to touch on it. We might also feel concerned or afraid because we're surrounded by relationships with people who don't know what to do with our reconsideration. And that will make those relationships complicated at best and perhaps even quite difficult and conflicted. And that tends to come with strong feelings as well. Because relationships are one of the things that we are evolved to count on for safety. This is, this is, these are my people, this is my tribe, this is my group, this is my herd. This is how I'm not alone in the world. And when our reconsideration of belief about anything, we're talking about emotions today, uh, takes us into terrain that doesn't match the story held by the group, we can feel like, oh my goodness, this resonates for me. It challenges the story I was given. It challenges the story held by the other humans that I've always thought of as my people, if I follow this path, I'm going to lose my people? That's a scary thought, isn't it? My lizard brain perks right up and says, this might be a bad idea. (laughs) I have a feeling about this. And then my brain, my mind, my spirit need to have a chat with that feeling, don't they? So how are we going to manage this? What are we going to do with this? I would love to say, I would love to say 
<laughs> then I have a magical answer to the cascade of challenges that can come with the reconsideration as something as ordinary as how we think about and experience emotions. I do not have such a magical answer. But I will offer a couple of thoughts for our consideration. If we grew up around religious frameworks that denied the full range of human emotions in the name of right belief, there are some questions we can ask ourselves about those frameworks that might be helpful. They also really might not. So pick them up if they're for you. Don't pick them up if they're not. One question might be, because those, those beliefs tend to, not just in the Christian tradition, but in many traditions, those, those story frameworks tend to be anchored in the writings and thinkings of ancient peoples, right? People who lived in a different experiential reality than the one we live in in many regards. So one question might be, what kind of story would the ancients have written if they had the information we have now? Another way to ask a similar question is what kind of, what is there in the story that the ancients wrote that would survive intact or still continue to speak if the writers had known what we know now? (coughs) The most enduring ancient stories do tend to have some overlap because being sagacious, being wise about human experience in general terms is not something the 21st century Western people have a handle on at all. We do not have the corner on that, right? And so when we come to ancient stories, we might be like, yeah, I can see where that story, you know, for example, taken literally puts the earth in the wrong spot in the cosmos, you know, um, in terms of the structure of the universe or whatever. But that feeling of uh, we are of great importance to ourselves, of centrality, that story might still speak to that theme and so on. There's lots of examples. But that question, what kind of story would the ancients have written if they had the information we have now, that can be a pretty useful general question, and we can also sort of apply more focus to it. So we could say, for example, what kind of story would the ancients have written about the relationship between emotions and living, I'm going to say, a godly life, sort of a phrase that I would have grown up, or a life that the divine would approve of or engage with? What might they have written about the relationship between emotions and living that kind of a life if they knew what we do now about where emotions come from and how they function? This is, to be sure, an act of the imagination. But if we don't think that the people who wrote the ancient stories were also using their imagination, that they were using some other human faculty to write those stories, we're kind of missing the point. Another question might be, are the texts behind the beliefs explainer texts, or are they experiencer texts? You'll encounter different words if you come at this from a more sort of the formal disciplines of study point of view. But I like those words. Are they explainer texts or are they experiencer texts? Is the writer talking about something in an attempt to say here is an actual literal explanation for this lived human experience? Or is this me reflecting on my experience? Uh, There's obvious places where if I think about the ancient texts in the tradition I grew up in, where it's pretty obvious which is which. The Psalms come to mind. Poetry. Poetry is not explainer text. At least most good poetry isn't explainer text. It's experiencer text. It's somebody actually kind of just letting it out and trying to find words for a lived experience. The dogs are coming to eat my soul is not meant to be literal. (laughs) For instance, that Psalm 22. (laughs) In other words, should we read the text as providing the parameters of right belief 
Or should we read them as expressions of what a lived experience felt like? I think that's important because, you know, I'm feeling so terrified that I need a God story to account for it might just mean something like, this is a big emotional storm and I've lost sight of the fact that it's not the blue sky. That's a very legitimate story to tell, don't you think? I've had those days. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. <laughs> but I, I, would, I could use a reassuring story right now. I could use a guiding story right now. I could use a big collection of them. Because I'm feeling adrift. Feeling overwhelmed. Right. I get that. I can resonate with that without swallowing whole the story that that deeply feeling person told themselves and their people to provide reassurance. They do not have to be in lockstep with one another. And that's a thing that takes a bit of processing to consider. Sometimes, when I'm putting a talkie bit together, it just flows. Sometimes I feel like I'm, you know, pushing a boulder up a hill, and if I take a bathroom break, it's going to roll all the way back to the bottom. (laughs) This one is somewhere in between. Um... But I'm going to wish us peace and good courage as we continue to explore what we believe, and then I'm going to leave it right there, you know, halfway up the hill. <laughs> if, you're, uh, if you're listening to this on the podcast, then it's been good to be with you, and, you know, peace to you as you process too. Send me an email. We can chat.